Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this morning. Uh, that we're all gathered. What an amazing way to start off a new year, gathered together, Lord, and uh, with one another in one accord in praise and worship of you, Lord, uh, ready to take on a new year. And whatever it is that you have to lay before us, Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to trust you no matter what it is and take those steps of faith that you call us to do, Lord. Uh, Lord, as we're going to see today, you uh, say to your people, just love me, Fear me, serve me, walk in my way. That's the secret. That's the key to all of it, Lord. So I pray that we would, uh, we would do that as we go. Uh, so Lord, I thank you so much. And in your name, Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. So maybe, <laughs> squeaky up here. Um, maybe you're one of those people that have always thought that the uh, difference between like the Old Testament and the New Testament was that the Old Testament was this, this story of having to um, earn God's favor through the keeping of his laws and command, and that the New Testament is all about grace, of the grace of God received through Jesus Christ. And you've always kind of separated it like that. And, and actually, and sadly, there are some churches that say, well, we don't really need the Old Testament. We're just a, we're a New Testament church. And I would say, that's sad. You're missing so much if you don't look into and don't study and read the Old Testament. But if you're one of those people that thinks, oh, the Old Testament's all wrath and the New Testament's all grace, well, then you're not looking close enough. That's why I'm so glad that we're going through this, because what we see as we go through, and especially in these last couple of chapters here in Deuteronomy, that it isn't because they were able to um, earn his mercy and his grace because of their, their actions, because of their ability to follow and keep his law. In fact, Moses makes a point of going on and on and on about how they were not able to, through their works, earn God's grace and his mercy and his love. They weren't able to do it. In fact, at one point, you know, Moses will say to them uh, after he goes through kind of their, their history of the last, you know, 40 years or so of disobedience and rebellion, he'll say to them, you've been rebellious since the first day that I've met you. There's just, there's nothing good. In fact, he's going to make that point that God, God didn't pick you to go into this land because you're great he picked it because he's great and he loves you. And also, by the way, you were here because he says that I'm sending you in to drive those folks out because they're wicked. They've been wicked for hundreds and hundreds of years despite my presence, uh, despite me being in front of them. They never chose to repent and turn to me. And so now it is time to me exact judgment on unrighteousness um, because I'm righteous. God is saying, I can't let disobedience and sin go or else I would be unrighteous because I'm righteous and I'm just, I have to do it. And um, I'm going to use you, Israelites, to do it because you're here, not because you're amazing or awesome or great, but because you're here. And also because I promised it to your forefathers. I promised that I would. And God says, I, because I promised, even though he says to Moses, maybe I should just wipe them out. Should I just wipe them out? Start over with you, Moses. See, he says, I made a promise to your forefathers and I keep my promises. You know, it's so important to realize that because there are, that's not the only promise God made. 
God made lots of promises to them and to us. Um, and boy, I mean, there are some times when, when we are in a tough spot or a really hard time in our life and we're starting to feel alone or scared or wondering what is going on and there's chaos around us. And then God says, just look into my word and find my promises because I keep my promises. The Old Testament here we see is filled with God's mercy, filled with God's grace. Uh, and it's so important for us to grasp that. See, God says, it's, it's, this is what, here's the deal. You need to believe me and love me, right? Not that, that you know, later on he will say, um, this is what I require of you. The last part of it, he says, you need to keep my commandments. But why does he say it? Well, we'll see that. It's not so that God will love them more. So God says, I love you. I am the God creator of the universe. He's going to go on and on. Moses is going to go on and on in this chapter and say, God, who created everything, everything, owns everything. That's the God that loves you. And maybe you're sitting there going, I don't know why God loves me. I'm, I'm, I'm a wretch. Well, guess what? You're right. You're right. You are a wretch. You're a wretch. Paul would say, Paul, the apostle Paul, the guy that wrote all these, like most of the New Testament, the guy that we would look at and say, that was, man, he was really a, a man of God. He was out there. Paul himself would say, I battle against my own flesh. The things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things I know that I'm not supposed to do, I still do those things. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from, well, he basically says, this wretched person that I am. And there is one answer to that. It was Jesus. Jesus is the only one. So if you're sitting here and like, man, I'm a wretch and, and I can't do this, you're right, you can't do it. But, but God can, and he loves you. He loves you. God loves you. Do you know that verse, John 3, 16? If I had a rainbow wig and a cardboard sign, you'd know it right away. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know what we do so much we see the world. We see that word. God so loved the world. Well, like, I totally get that. It's like one of the first verses that I ever memorized as a kid. God so loved the world. But you know what we often forget to see? It says, God so loved you. You, you, you. We read that verse and say, God so loved me that he gave his only son for me. God says, I want you to follow my commandments because it will be good for you. That's what he'll say. He said it already, and he's going to say it again. Follow these commandments when you go into love, because it will be good for you. But what I really want you to do is love me. He'll say, fear me, which you know, we're going to look at means what? Not be afraid of me. Revere me. Because God says, because I deserve it. I'm God. Love me. Follow me. He, these are the things that he says. You know, um, I, I don't know why I wrote this note, but it's worth saying. At some point, you know, uh, I feel like the church stopped saying words like born again and saved. Like when you accept Jesus, that gift that God gave us, that in, in John 3.16, that verse that I said that he gave you his only son because he loved you so much that if you accept his son, then you will live forever. That's, that's the, the, the gospel message and that's your response to it. 
right? Um, it says that when you do that, you become born again, that you are saved. And for, it feels like somewhere along the line, we just said, you know what? Those words are too like 70s, like Jesus freaky type of thing, born again, born again. I remember actually being in college one day and was kind of talking to this one young woman in class and, and she said, well, you're not one of those born agains, are you? And I was like, well, no, but... <laughs> But I was, well, I actually, I knew what it was. I wasn't. So she was right. But it was with disdain that she said it in her voice. You're not one of those born agains. But you know what? I am. In fact, Jesus used that same term. He said to Nicodemus when he came to him at night, he said, you know, you have to be born again. This wasn't, that was not a phrase that the hippies made up in the seven. Any, any hippies here? Where's Jan? All right. <laughs> Welcome back, Jan. <laughs> it feels like we were like, I oh, know, I'm not going to use that word anymore. But you know what? Jesus, Jesus used it. He said, you need to be born again. The Bible says that you have to be saved. It's important not to kind of get rid of that word because it's impactful. Saved, it means or it implicates that there's something that you're saved from. Saved from. The Bible says that if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't accepted Jesus, then you're not saved, which means that you have not been saved from what, gang? Hell. Sorry. Boy, that's a bummer to start the year off with, isn't it? That's the reality, though. That's not even in my notes. God is just taking me someplace, so we're just going to keep rolling here. Born again. Born again. Well... In Deuteronomy, at this point in chapter 10, you know, uh, we, when we, last year when we were in Deuteronomy, we were looking at uh, chapter 9 and seeing, a, you know, God, uh, Moses just going over and over again. Now, when you guys go into this new land, just remember, you're not doing it because uh, you're not succeeding because you're amazing. You're not a mighty people. In fact, you're the, you're the least of the mighty people. You're not mighty. When mighty people are here and you're here. Um, so when you go in and God gives you success and he starts you know, like wiping out all these, these armies uh, and, and fortified cities, when you go in there and you start taking that over, don't, don't fool yourself at some point into thinking um, that this was because you're amazing because, well, you're not. You're not amazing. You're not, you're not, you're not. It keeps going. And at some point, don't you think that the people must be feeling like, all right, we get it. This is getting a little repetitive, Moses, and maybe they're getting a little annoyed. And maybe, maybe you've been here for the last several weeks and you're saying, okay, <laughs> we get it. We're not awesome. They weren't awesome. They're not mighty. We're not mighty. We get it. We understand. And maybe you're getting a little bit annoyed and you would like to move on. Well, too bad. The reason why it's repetitive is because people need to hear things more than one time, over and over and over again. And even though Moses um, tells them this over, you're going to go into the land and you're going to be a success and you're going to overcome these mighty armies that are bigger than you and you're going you're to get all this property that you didn't earn, you didn't plant, you didn't do, and I, I'm giving all of it to you. Um, the reason is because God knows them. And God is saying, this is important for you to get this into your head. And as we all sit there and we all, as someone tells you something three or four times and on the 10th time, you're like, I got it. But I am telling you, there is a part of it in your brain that is still saying, but God had to choose somebody 
And well, I guess it's me. I guess he chose me for, could have chosen anybody, but he chose me. And there's just a little, a little seed of it in there. And I'll give you an example. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it tells the story of Uzziah the king, right? He, his father passed away and he was 16 years old and they made him king. And it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, which was rare for those kings, but he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he, and he had great success and God prospered him. Um, and uh, it says that um, he, he built cities and, and towers and he created actually new weapons to be able to defeat the Philistine army. And it says that God gave him victory over everything again because he, it says in, in chapter 26, it says that he sought the Lord and the Lord prospered him. And on and on uh, it went. And I'm going to turn there, second, if I can find it quick, Second Chronicles 26. It says, God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians, and, and all who lived at Gerbaal and against the Munites over and over again. And so his, and this is in, in chapter 26, verse 15, speaking of Uzziah, who was doing right in the eyes of the Lord for years and years and years, searching after and following after God, and God was helping it. But then in 15, it says, so his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped to become strong. And so he becomes very famous in the land. And what do you think happens? Verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord, his God, by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Now, that seems like not a bad thing, but what you need to understand was that he was not a priest, and that was only the job of the priest. And so he got so built up in his own mind, he got so raised up and popular that he started to think, man, I am awesome. I am an amazing king. Look at all that I've been able to accomplish even after all of what Moses is saying to the people when you go in. And we know that God said to Moses to tell them, make sure that you tell this to your children. Remember it said, when you go in and you guys are all kind of experiencing prosperity and all those new things, make sure to tell your children when they come to you why you have had all of this success and prosperity. Make sure your children know and let your children tell their children and their children and their children and so on. And somewhere along the line, it gets lost because here's Uzziah doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord until he becomes really popular and famous and wealthy and rich. And he starts thinking, man, I am something else. I am really something else. In fact, you know what? I'm so good, I should go, I should be king and priest. I should be pastor and worship leader. <laughs> That's just occurring to me right this second. Forgive me, Lord, I did not intend for that to happen. Uzziah wasn't a priest. He wasn't allowed to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. So the high priest comes to him and says, what, what are you doing in here? You're not allowed to be here. This is not your role. And you know what he does? He picks up this censer of incense and he starts swinging it around thinking, you know what? I can do whatever I want because I'm the most popular king going right now. I'm a big deal. And you know what happens? God strikes him with leprosy right at that moment. Leprosy comes out on his forehead right there. You know, in, in the Bible, leprosy is this image of sin. You know, it's, it's disease on the inside that eventually manifests itself on the outside. Your skin turns white. The flesh starts to die. Uh, eventually, fingers start to fall off. It's gross. 
But this is a, a picture of sin. He had sin, had grown on the inside, and now was manifesting himself as, a, you know, I'm, I'm king and priest. Do you know, and actually in all of the Bible, there is only one king and priest. Do you know who that is? It's Jesus. Jesus was the only one that could be king and high priest. He was the only one that could fill that, but Uzziah stepped in. Even after what was assumed, they would be told children to children to children, don't forget that your success in your life here, your success is coming through the intervention of God. It is at God's favor, not because you're awesome. Now they, at some point, become convinced that they deserve everything that they have. You deserve it. You know, this leading up to Christmas time, I had the opportunity to watch, like, you know, some football, um, which, you know, when you watch football, there's commercials in between certain spots, there's commercial breaks. And what I started to realize is that there are so many commercials out there telling us that we deserve all this stuff. We deserve it. You're watching, and all of a sudden, you're, you're watching... Um, you know, look, I like iPhones as much as everybody else. I know it seems like I pick on them a lot, but it's, you know, it's obvious. There's, there's phone commercials that say, you, here's the new iPhone 13 mega whatever with 16 cameras and you deserve this. It literally says, you deserve it. And you start thinking, you know what? I've had this stinking iPhone 12 for almost a year. I put up with it. I do deserve this new phone. And we start thinking, we deserve it. What do you think a commercial would be like if it came on and said, let me tell you what you really deserve? <laughs> I don't know what product it would be selling, but I don't think I want to see that commercial. But it is a reminder that God says, you think you deserve? Let me tell you what you deserve. I'm giving you grace. I'm pouring out mercy but it's unmerited favor. That's what it is, unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. You can't say, like, I keep all of these really great rituals. I have stacked up more good than bad. By the way, if that's what you think, if you think that you're stacking up more good than bad, you haven't. You haven't. There just is no way that you're stacking up. And by the way, if you think that that, when you get up to heaven and they're like, well, hello, let's just take a look at your life and see if you have more good than bad. And they're going to weigh it out. They're not going to weigh it out. In fact, if you haven't accepted Jesus, they're going to say, let's take all of your good and compare it to Jesus. Do you have more good than him? Because he's perfect. Have you ever even one time lied then you don't match up. See, that's what you deserve, but what we get is grace and mercy. I, okay, chapter 10. <laughs> uh, see, the thing is, right at the end of chapter 9, it, 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 <laughs> I almost made it to 10. I almost made it to 10. See, the thing is, like, Moses is kind of going through, and he's saying, this is why you're going into the land. It's this reason and this reason. And, and remember, God wanted to destroy them, and he's literally prostrated himself before God, and he's pleading on behalf of the people. And he's like, don't wipe them out. Um, you know, and, and lastly, he comes to, what will everybody around here think? What will all these pagan nations think? They'll think that you weren't able to do it. 
And I don't want anyone to think poorly of you. Remember we talked last time about how his main concern was God's glory. His main concern was God's reputation. And he says, no, you know what, God, you need to, you need to um, spare them. Not because they're great, but because you're great. And everybody needs to see that around here. Everybody needs to know that. And, and it ends kind of at verse 29, but we kind of referred back to 19 where it says that he pleaded on behalf of the people. And it says in verse 19, God, the Lord listened to me. The Lord listened to me. And basically what he's saying is right at the end of chapter, 20, uh, chapter 9, Moses says, God heard my pleas on your behalf, and he decided to not wipe you out. Um, and then he says to Moses, at that time, so at what time? At the time that he says, okay, I'm not going to wipe out the people, Moses, this time. Um, he says, hewn for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. Okay. Remember, Moses came down with the two tablets. How do you picture that, by the way? Is it always like the Charlton Heston movie where he's like coming down, he's got two big stones, he's like, you've transversed the Lord, he throws them down and, and they all break into pieces. And you know what, that actually did happen. I mean, he did come down and throw them down and it was like he was saying, look, you've broken God's word by what you've done. Remember, he comes down and they're like worshiping a molded calf and dancing around it and, and they've forsaken God completely and he brings them and he throws the tablets down. How do you picture those tablets in your mind? Like massive stone tablets? What, like a Flintstone tablet? Just like, the thing is, it says later on so in, this, in this chapter, he's saying, well, I carried up two new tablets of stone in my hands. And so I started thinking, well, I guess they couldn't have been that big. And why do we imagine these massive, huge stones? In fact, they couldn't be massive because, well, he'd have to carry them. But also it says later that he's going to put them into the ark, which we know was only 52 inches by 31 inches. So they had to be able to fit within that. So I looked it up in the Talmud, which was kind of like the written history of the Jews. Um, and it says in there that they're only actually 18 by 18. 18. Actually, it's six hand width, which is about a cubit, which is, I know you know all this, hand widths and cubits, that's all standard measure, right? 18 inches right here. So they were, according to the Talmud, about 18 inches by 18 inches, like a square stone, nine inches thick. That's the part that threw me off a little bit. Nine inches thick. So I was doing a little bit of calculations. Like, all right, if you've got the Ark of the Covenant, and it's 51 inches by 31 by 31, and you've got a nine-inch block of stone, well, you couldn't put two on top of each other because they would be too high. So they must have gone like this and like this. And then we know that in the Ark also was that jar of manna and the rod of Aaron. <laughs> now, when you think about the rod of Aaron... I always pictured it as this really long, like, staff, like Gandalf, kind of walking along. But it couldn't have been higher than 52 inches, right, in order to fit in the ark. I'm just helping you to get some real visualization of the thing. So, so maybe it was more like a cane, or maybe it was like someone pointed out to me, like a shepherd has a rod and a staff. The staff is the long one, and the rod is the thing that he hits the sheep with to get them going. I have one, too, actually. I have a rod of Aaron in my office right now, so... I'm not afraid to use it on the sheep, just saying. <laughs> so he says, hewn for yourself these two stones, and, so, and I will write on them 
the words that were on the first two tablets, which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. I think it's funny, because this time he says, you'll put them in the ark. He's like, all right, make for yourself an ark. Make some place to put these things, so when you bring them down this time, you don't drop them on the ground and break them up. Put them in the ark. And we know that Moses in Exodus 25 gives them the dimensions of how to build the ark, right? That's happening before this, right? So he actually will say, I had, I, I made, he says, I made the ark. But really what he says is, I told this guy how to do it, and he did it. And they made the ark so that there was an actual ark for him to bring the stones down and to put them in, these two tablets. But you know what I thought was really interesting? Like, why did God tell him that, hey, let's do it again? Like, why did God say, why wasn't it enough the first time? Yes, okay, well, I told them, in Exodus 20, I told them from the top of the mountain all the commandments, and then I had you come up, and I, had, I, I wrote them down. I, I engraved them onto these stones, which I gave to you, and you took them down because everybody was in sin, and then you threw them down um, as, a, as a symbol of you've broken the, the words of God. You've broken the law of God. And then God says, but you know what? Come back up. I'm going to give you another set to take down. Why? Why wasn't that, I mean, why did he feel like he had to have it written down? He'd already told him and showed it to him once, and why did he have to write it down? Again, these are the things that I struggle with on my own. But as I thought, that, I thought, God, it was important for God to know that they were starting off with the written word of God in their possession before they went into this promised land, right? As they were going into the promised land, it was important that God said, I want you to take with you the written words of me, of God, the written word of God. It's important. You know when, I think I may have mentioned this to the, uh, to the Christian, the promised land isn't heaven. Did you know that? The promised land isn't heaven. The promised land is the abundant Christian life that we get to walk through until the end. Many of you are in that abundant life right now, right? When somebody gets saved, when someone gets born again, what do we do? We give them a Bible because on that beginning of that journey into the promised land, it is important that they take with them the written word of God. That's why when we come here every single Sunday and I say, open up your Bibles. If you don't have one, put up your hand because I'm going to put the written word of God in your hands because it's important. It was important to God. It's important to me. It should be important to you. So, uh, it says in verse 3, So I made an ark of Achaia wood, hewn two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain, having the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Do you know what God brought my attention to right in that moment? He says that, God wrote on those second two tablets the same words that he had written on the first two. Do you understand that God did not change what he had said the first time? God's word did not change. Even though they broke the law, even though they transgressed the words of God and literally broke them, it didn't change what God said. God didn't say, you know what, maybe I was a little bit too harsh. Let me take a second look at that. Let me do a little bit of a revise let me wordsmith it a little bit because maybe that was a little bit too hard for you to handle God. He said, no, here are my words. I'm going to write them down exactly the same again so that you can read them and know them and keep them is what it will say later. I was really thinking about that this week and I thought that's, that's interesting. What God said is here, I'm going to write down my words again. I'm not going to change them. In fact, they will be um, written in stone. 
Do you know that saying, written in stone? What does that mean when something's written in stone? You can't change it. It's unchangeable. It's written in stone. And I think that, boy, we have kind of lost that along the way somewhere. And I see, uh, you know, in the church or the church, the church world, I see so many changes to the word of God that is supposed to be written in stone. But these ideas of things that are like, well, that's not really culturally relevant anymore. That's, that's a little bit, you know, that might have been fine for then. But nowadays, things are different. You know, we really don't have to, we don't have to, you know what? Yes, okay, well, I mean, technically we've broken that. But really, did it need to be, you know, pieced together so solidly? And God has said, but it's my word, I gave it to you and it's written in the stone. These are the places within the church that I see that people have taken God's word. Um, with, again, within the church, people have taken God's word and said, this is really not that important anymore. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, gender identification, the roles of men and women within God's church. People within the church have taken those things and been like, they're not really that important, are they? But God says, but I wrote them in stone. I wrote them in stone. And not only that, I had you build a box to put them in so that you would always have them and so that they wouldn't be broken. And you know what the box is in? Just a box. It's called the Ark of the Covenant and the lid. We talked about this. Remember, we talked about the lid of the Ark isn't the lid of the box. It's called the mercy seat. That is where the, the, the atonement was given. The blood was sprinkled onto the mercy seat on top of the ark with the word of God inside. And the word of God gets tossed aside and God says, you can break it as often as you will, but it doesn't change it. It doesn't change it. It's written in stone. That's heavy, heavy. <laughs> They're stones. It says, then I turned and I came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I made. And there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. He's literally he's talking to people. and He's like, I got these stones from God. He wrote on them. I put them in the box. There they are. You want to see? There they are right there. You want to see them? There they are. Would that not be the coolest archaeological find right now? Someone just find the ark of the covenant. That would be, well, I think it would be amazing. Probably something horrible would happen. Okay, I'm not talking about like Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm, I'm saying like somebody would exploit it in some horrible way or try to, but I think it would be amazing to look in and see these two tablets of stone, the words of God that are right there. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're going to get to heaven and then God's going to say, hey, you want to see the ark? I got it over here. He's going to move some stuff out of the way. And, like... and I think that's where we'll see. And he's like, hey, look, here's the word of God. You know, you can look in and, and I don't, I don't you, know, you know, read Hebrew off the top of my head. So I'd be looking at those um, uh, tablets, and I'd be like, yeah, there's some marks on there, and I don't know what they say. And God would say, oh, oh, you want to know what those say? Turn on over to Exodus 20 in your Bible, because that's also the word of God that you have right in front of you. So when Moses says, there's the word of God, I say, there that is, right there, right in front of you. Every one of you has a copy of it right in your lap. There is the word of God. Take it. Look at it. He's saying, there it is. It's in your presence right now, the very words of God. Right here, right in your presence, the very word of God. So, all right. 
I know. That's not how I pictured it. I, was, I thought it would be more trumpety. But uh, <laughs> you never know. I don't know. I mean, that's just my interpretation. All right. You know that uh, in Isaiah 40, it's a really important verse. It's really important. Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Stand forever. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter who our world leaders are. It doesn't matter uh, what, even what we believe. Um, the Bible says, the word itself says, that the word of God will stand forever. Forever. So verses six through nine is a parenthetical insert. That, that, it's like a fancy way of saying that Moses inserted this little section right here. It doesn't go along necessarily with the narrative, but it does kind of in the way. Um, I'm going to read through this. It says, Now the children of Israel journeyed from the wells of Bani Jakan um, to, you know, that place, Morzra, where Aaron died and where he was buried, and Eliezer, his son, ministered as priest in his stead. From there, they journeyed to Gudgada, and from Gudgada to Jotbatha, a land of rivers of water. And at that time, the Lord separated the tribe. This is the impo- really important part here. At the, the time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. And so what Moses is saying right here is God decided that it was important to set apart one of the tribes to be the priests of all of the people. He's going to say that they were the Levitical priests. Anybody that was in the tribe of Levi, their role then was to be a priest after Aaron, because that was the uh, tribe that Aaron was from. By the way, what tribe was Moses from? Aha, Levi, that's right, because they were brothers, right? So if Aaron was a Levite, then so was Moses, right? So he says that it is important to establish this Levitical priesthood because at this time, they needed a mediator between them and God. Someone who was going to provide a way of atonement for them, a way, uh, an atonement for their sins, someone who was going to pray for them and to bless them. If they tried to do it on their own, if they refused the Levitical priest mediator, then they would perish, right? We see that even in the story that I just told you of Uzziah. He wasn't a priest, but he went in and was like, I could do it on my own. And God said, no, no, you can't. And so God here, he sets out before them, he kind of inserts this little thing and says, you know, after the, after the family of the descendants of Aaron, what I did was when he died, I created the kind of the priesthood and, and their role would be just to minister to you, to act as the mediator between you and God, but also they were going to be the ones that were going to carry around the ark and the tabernacle while we were in the wilderness. But it's important, he says, they needed this mediator someone who was going to help atone for their sins, someone who was going to bless them, someone who was going to um, uh, minister to them and perform all these priestly duties. It was, they needed it. They needed it. But see, when as I was reading that, I thought, wow. So when you read things in the Old Testament, you know that there are some things that are immediately important to them, and then there are some things that are bigger picture things that are for things that came after that. Right? And a lot of the things that we see in the Old Testament, they're called the shadow of the substance, the substance being Jesus. Almost always the substance is Jesus. So things in the Old Testament that are the shadow of the substance, like the royal priesthood, 
and the high priest, the royal high priest, which we know and we just said was Jesus. Things are a shadow of the substance, Jesus being the substance. And so we see here that this was part in preparation for the arrival of Jesus, the great high priest who was to come. We know that actually is true because here's some, here's some verses for you. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that Jesus is our great high priest. In 1 Timothy 2, it says that he is the one mediator between God and man. In 1 John 2, it says that he, he is the atonement. By the way, not offers atonement, but he is the atonement for our sin. And in John 1.16, it says... And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. That's blessings we have received. So all of the things that God said that he had set the Levitical priesthood up to do, all of it was perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Without the Levitical priest, they could not go into the presence of God. They could not have atonement for their sin. Without Jesus, none of that is possible. And many people think, well, I could do it without Jesus, and as we've already established, no, you can't. They could not go into the presence of God without the Levitical priesthood. We cannot go into the presence of God without the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. Do you see how that lines up? And God is saying, I did it then for them, for their benefit, but I'm setting it up so that everyone from Jesus on will understand that he came to be the one who atoned for your sin, the one who blesses you, the one who is the one mediator between you and God, because without that, you're lost. It's also interesting to me that he says, uh, that I read that part, therefore there is no portion no inheritance with his brethren, the Lord, of the, the Lord in his inheritance, just as, let me read that again. Therefore, Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord God promised him. And so what they're saying, and, and what you need to understand is that all the other tribes were given earthly inheritance, land that they were going to be given, except for the tribe of Levi. There was no earthly inheritance given to them. Do you know that the Bible says um, in 1 Peter that we are... We, believers, are a royal priesthood. We are now a royal priesthood. Go ahead and read that to yourself in, in 1 Peter, not right now, but later. 1 Peter chapter 2, read through that. He says that uh, we are now the royal priesthood. And you know that makes sense to me because as a Christian, do we have any inheritance, earthly inheritance? No, we don't. We have no earthly inheritance. In fact, our inheritance is heaven. We are co-inheritors with Jesus, in fact, it says. So we are like these. So we're kind of included in this example. It's like we don't have an earthly inheritance. We have a heavenly inheritance. So what's our role, right? If, if Jesus' role is to be the mediator, to be the atonement for sin, to be the one that blesses, what's our role then? If we're a royal priesthood, what's our role in that? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it tells us that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So as the royal priesthood of God, what is our role? We are to declare Jesus to the world. That really lines up well with last week's message. If you were here, that's what we're supposed to be doing from that day, the day after Christmas, all the way until Christmas day the next year. We are to declare the light of the one who called us out of darkness 
as the royal priesthood, that's our role. We're not supposed to be wrapped up in, in any earthly inheritance. We don't have an earthly inheritance. We are, as he's going to say here, strangers, pilgrims, foreigners, all of these words that say that we actually don't belong here anymore. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. We no longer have citizenship here. We've given all that up for the greater thing of heaven so that we don't have to be worried about if I have this or do I get that or what do I own or what am I going to own or what am I going to lose or what, what if the stock market plummets, right? Because God says, but you have a heavenly inheritance that's not affected by the stock market or the world economy or who's running your 401k. I guess you think about it this way. If we have eternal life and you're a Christian, then you have the best retirement plan there is. Housing. I mean, didn't someone just say, didn't Jeanette just say that in our father's house are many mansions? Boom. Housing. Affordable. Right? Because it's part of the retirement plan. Health, no crying, no depression. It's all gone. It's all gone. That's amazing. Verse 10, it says, at this first time, I stayed in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So he, Moses reminds them right now, I was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, no food, no water. I came down because you were wretched. I went back up because God said, bring me two new stones. And I'm going to rewrite my words, the same words. And he says, I was up there for another 40 days and 40 nights. Do you know that that's impossible that's impossible to go 40 days and 40 nights without water. You might be able to do it without food. Some of us probably should. <laughs> but you can't go without water. So when I read that, do I think, well, that must mean something different. Ha <laughs> there we go. Bible's false. Bible's false because you can't spend 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know. There could be many reasons, but this is what I think. I think God sustained Moses in a way that only God can do. You know, how could we say, I, I totally believe that God created the entire creation of everything by speaking it, but he couldn't sustain Moses for 40 days without water. Come on, folks. That's silly. The pres- in the presence of God, God said, you're here with me in my presence right now, and we're doing something together, and you know, maybe it's going to be hard. No one said it was easy on Moses to be without food or water for 40 days, but you know what? I believe that God sustained Moses in a miraculous way that only God can do. Have you ever felt that way? Has there, have you ever had a time when you're just like, man, I am worn out. I'm done. I I can't help anybody else. I don't want to talk to anybody else. If I look at my phone and I see their name, I'm going to be like, I pretend I didn't see that because I need a rest and I just can't. And lately for me, it has felt that way. It has felt a little bit overwhelming, dry and empty. Then I bump into a brother in the supermarket and we're talking a little bit and I'm like, hey man, can I just can I pray for you right now in the produce section of Publix? And he says, yeah. And so we get together and we start praying. And, and in that moment, because I, I part of me was thinking, you know, the flesh in me is thinking like, man, what are, well, I mean, there's people here and let's go off to a secret spot. But then God reminded me, didn't you just tell everybody that they all think you're nuts anyway? 
and just go on out there and do what God is calling you to do. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just practice what I preach. Literally, I'm going to practice what I preach. And so I grabbed this brother and we went right there and we just started praying. And, and I might've been loud. I don't know. I tend to get loud when I'm excited. And, and I, we were praying and then we finished and I was like, amen. And I stood up and there was a lady standing right next to us. And she just goes, amen. And off she goes. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I was just like, Woo! I was energized telling you the story right now. But I was like, yeah, and I was just like, and then, you know, just the, the rest of the day, and, you know, Angie, I work with her, and we were like, I, I told you a story. I was excited, wasn't I? I was. And then I was like, I was energized. I went from being, like, worn out and dry to being, being uh, obedient to God, and he was like, sustainment. And I was like, Whoosh. and I don't even know if that's a word, but that's what it felt like right there. And that's where Moses is in that place being sustained by God. And how many of you right now can say that you've been in a place that was dry and worn down and then you just did it anyway because God said, go and talk to that person, go and pray to this person, open up my word, pray, listen to a worship song. And you did it anyway. And you were just like, wow, sustained. Wow. And he will do that because he is a living God who cares about us. And if I haven't mentioned it, he loves you. He loves you. And that's where Moses is. And that's where God spoke to me in verse 10, just 10. And then the Lord said to me, rise, begin your journey before the people that you may go and, and, and possess the land in which I swore to the fathers to give them. And now Israel, he's talking to them right now. What does the Lord require of you? Now this starts to feel heavy a little bit, right? Where it's like, what does the Lord require of you? But actually, the word right there, he says, this is what the Lord asks of you. This is in Hebrew. This is what the Lord asks of you, only this. That's, what, that's how it's phrased in Hebrew. The Lord asks only this of you, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Do you see? Now, at the first reading, you'd be like, okay, here, God has given them all these rules and commands and things to do. But if you really look at it, what is he saying? Fear we already talked about. Reverence, awe. Recognize who God is, the awe of God. To be like, he's God. Everything around me, he created everything. He created everything. Um, and he knows my name. If that doesn't make you in awe of God, I just don't know where to go. Be in awe of God. Walk in his ways. You know what that means? Walk in his ways? It means walk in his ways. Go. It means be obedient. Be in awe of God and be obedient. Be in, in motion. Go. And love him and serve him. This is what he says. This is the only thing that God asks of you now as you go on about your way is that you hold him in proper respect, that you are in awe of God, that you actually are obedient to go in the ways that he would have you to go, that you love him, and the last thing is serve him. Because if you do these other three things, you will end up serving God, not because you're told to, but because you desire to. Do you understand the difference? You desire to serve him because you love him, because you see he's amazing. He's going to go on and remind him, because I've done all of these things for you. If anybody deserves worship, if anyone deserves the word deserve, it's God. He did all this for them. He's done all of this for you. And he asks you only that you would remember who he is 
believe who he is, walk in his ways, love him, and you will serve him. And then in verse 13, he says, and keep the commandments which the Lord, which the, and his statutes which I command you. And like, oh, there we go. He had to throw in the, you know, make sure you follow the commandments or else you're bad. No, he says, do it so that it will be good for you. It'll be good for you. If you do these things, if I want you to love me with everything that you've got, that's what God says. That's for me, God says. For me, I want you to love me. For you, do these things because it will be well for you. You'll get along with each other better. You won't get sick. You won't break the law. You won't do all these. Those things are for you, so it will be well for you. But you love me. That's for me, God says. That's what he asks only of them. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. That's, I mean, it seems almost like a strange verse for most to put in there, but really what he's saying is you just came from a land of pagan gods. You are going into a land of pagan gods. They're everywhere. Your God, the God that loves you, that called you out, is the greatest God, God over any other God. In fact, what he kind of says is that the very trees that they cut down to carve those idols out of that they bet on to worship, God made those. He's the God of those as well. And it's this reminder of this God that you serve, that loves you, that you're walking in his ways. He is the God of all things. Don't forget Boy, it's, why is it so easy to forget that? Why do we do that? Why do we, we hey, we all sit in here and be like, I totally, I, I get that. I totally get that. And then we go home and we forget that we didn't take something out of the freezer for lunch. And we're like, ah, and now we're wrapped up in life. And we've forgotten. It's so easy to do that. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all people, as it is written this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. In fact, and this is really crazy that Moses kind of says this because circumcision among the Jews was a sign that they were different. It was actual physical circumcision, the cutting away of some flesh that would indicate that they were different from everybody else around them. And I've often asked myself, God, was that really an effective sign to everybody else around them? I mean, how short were those robes that they were wearing that everybody else would, would kind of be like, oh, you're one of the circumcised. Um, I mentioned that. I think I mentioned it to Jeff uh, one time, and he said, no, it was not a sign for everybody else. It was a sign and a reminder to them. They would see themselves every day, and every day they would be reminded, oh, that's right. I'm supposed to be different. I'm set apart by God, right? And, but what had happened was even this early on, it had become a thing that they, had, they were clinging to the act of circumcision and the inside change that it was supposed to represent meant nothing. And, and Moses says to them, you know, don't worry about the circumcision of the flesh. Circumcise the flesh of your heart. Circumcise your heart. Let there be a change inside that is then reflected outside. A person can't see my heart, but I know my heart. But let it be then reflected to those around me, what's on the inside. 
He says, when you go in, there's going to be all kinds of different people in there. Circumcise your heart. Um, And then once again, he says, don't be stiff-necked. You know, stiff-necked, even in this situation, meant that they were unable to look to the left or the right to see what God had done for them. He's going to go on and talk about that. They were unable to look to the left or the right to see what God was doing or had done or was going to do. They were stiff-necked. He said, you know what? Circumcise your heart so that you can stop being stiff-necked, so that you can look to the left or to the right. Now, I mean, sometimes we talk about not getting caught up with looking to the left or the right. There are different images here, right? Let, when I say that, the other one, the bad one, that's like don't get wrapped up in the circumstances of your life so much so that you lose sight of God. But what God also is saying is, is don't get so focused on what's right in front of you that you miss that I'm actually operating all around you. The Bible says that God goes before you, he's behind you, he's all around you, all around you. So we ever start to say, you know, I just don't, I just, you know, I really don't know where God is. Look around, go to the beach, look at your kids, look at yourself in the mirror. You know, God created you, he created you. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widows and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take the oath of his name. You know what? I love when the Bible says hold fast. You know, here's the image of hold fast, okay? This is what it means, um, that you grab on with both hands. That's hold fast right there. Grab on to God with both hands. That means that you plant yourself into the word. That means that when you get scared, you grab on to God. This is what we do, though. Well, I know I got to hold on to God, but I want this too, and we grab over here. Now, we're no longer holding fast. We're holding on tight, but we're holding on tight to two things. And what happens is this one starts to pull a little bit. This is something in the world. This is my job or, or a relationship or some problem or, you know, the, the muffler falling off of my car. And that's the thing that, that, you know, is consuming me and it's pulling. And I'm like, you know, I, I really, I, I need to resolve this. I need to resolve this. And what do we do? Yeah. And we hold fast to this. And then all of a sudden we start getting pulled away by this. And then we turn around and be like, man, I feel like God is so far from me these days. <laughs> well, yeah. She got pulled away. Remember the Bible says that if we forget, if we set aside the ways of the Lord, we will drift. There you are. Hold fast, he says. You're going into a land that's surrounded with pagan influence, worldly things. Hold fast, he says. Hold fast to him. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your father went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of the heaven. Basically, he's saying, look what God did. He took 70 people. Remember Jacob going into Egypt, 70 people, and he has made them 3 million people. 3 million people. God says, there's nothing beyond me to do. Hold fast. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you.
for, I thank you for your word, Lord. Uh, I thank you that it's not completely now written on stone tablets so that I can bring it around with me, Lord, but I thank you for preserving it for so long so that I can open it up, Lord, so that I can read it, so that I can understand it. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you love me. Lord, forgive me for being disobedient just so much. Lord, I pray that you would help me to revere you, Lord, to walk in your ways, to love you, Lord, and to serve you every moment. Lord, help me to remember that I don't have earthly inheritance, but I do have heavenly inheritance, Lord. Thank you for that. Lord, help me to go out today just with an abundance of love in my heart, Lord, ready to Share that. As, as your word says in Second Peter, that as the royal priesthood, it is our job now to share the light that set us free from the darkness and bondage with all of those around us. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.